Um, but yeah, so today's reading comes from Judges 19, verses 1 to 30. Page 184 in the Red Bibles that you guys have. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him for three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and to drink together. Afterwards, the woman's father said, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up that night, uh, and when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then, when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave, the father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is, Jerusalem, with his two subtle donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and as the sun set, they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We both have straw and fodder for our donkeys, and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, 
No, my friends, don't be so vile, since this man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go, but there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Um, let's bear in prayer. Our gracious, most merciful Heavenly Father, as we look at this uh, very bleak uh, passage of Scripture, uh, we are thankful to you that all Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, for uh, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that uh, men and women of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we pray that as we uh, look at this passage that uh, so diagnoses the human condition, that uh, we would be uh, realists in your world, and people who uh, uh, look forward to the coming again of King Jesus and who seek to live with him as the king, the ruler over our lives. And we pray these things in his most precious name. Amen. I understand the comfort that religious ritual and the singing of hymns can bring. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But in the 21st century, can goodness and mercy be found just as well outside religion as within it? Does religion make good anyone who is not good already? It certainly makes some mad or bad who otherwise would not have been. End of quote. Now, that's... Uh, from an article they found in the Sydney Morning Herald which was arguing against the teaching of the Christian faith uh, to children in our schools. Uh, and they, the author, a lady, argued against teaching Christian faith because she said that by doing so, what we do is we, um, we, uh, we create prejudices and we damage the, the basic goodness of children and the rationale being that uh, there's been so many conflicts and so many wars which have been created by religion. And of course, uh, it is quite true that religion has caused many conflicts and many wars. But is it true that people are basically good? Uh, let me uh, share with you something else I found in the media. It was uh, from an interview on the ABC with a Sydney University philosopher 
who was having a go at Christianity. And he said, and I quote, You don't need religion to help with morality. We develop our own systems of morality through philosophy and by sitting around in pubs discussing moral issues. Uh, in my younger days, I've sat around quite a few pubs. I must have missed something because I didn't, don't remember any of those discussions on how we could be more moral beings. But there is a sense, of course, in which... Uh, what they're <clears throat> trying to say there is exactly what has been going on. Uh, Australian society has, in practical terms, by and large, abandoned God. And we're on the journey of making up our own moral code as we amble along. We do that which is right in our own eyes. Now today we are finishing, we're wrapping up our series on the book of Judges. Uh, that's been quite a ride, quite a journey. And you may recall, uh, if you're with us a couple of weeks back, when we looked at Genesis, uh, Judges chapters 17 through to 18, uh, we saw that um, Israel was, uh, was still very religious. Uh, but they, what they had was a, a false religion. Because they... They still believed in God, they still believed in Yahweh, but they had, um, they had this kind of blended sort of uh, world view. They had uh, sidelined Yahweh in favour of the idols of the Canaanites, the, the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they had mixed it all up with the, the values of the, of the Canaanite pagans who were around them. That is that they were religious, but they trusted in religion, they trusted in objects, they trusted in idols, they would go to God when they needed him, they were religious, but they actually did not obey God. They didn't have a relationship of obedience with him. And the result, as we'll see in chapters 19 through to chapter 21 of uh, Judges, if you care to have that open and there is an outline in your service sheets there to take notes and to follow. The result of this uh, abandonment of a true uh, relationship with God is the moral chaos uh, that we uh, find now at this uh, end point of the book of Judges. And uh, you'll find Judges 19 on page 184. I want to warn you though as we um, uh, dive into this uh, section of God's Word that these chapters are not pretty. The slippery slide into moral chaos uh, described here is profoundly disturbing, um, causing some people to even wonder why on earth uh, this whole episode is actually included in the Scriptures. Why is it in the Bible at all? But all of these things, all Scripture is recorded for our good. And uh, as we'll see uh, in this passage, that it uh, provides for us a diagnosis of what it means to live as your own king, your own ruler, uh, and not under the rule of God. Now, we didn't read the whole story because it goes for three chapters and that would be pretty lengthy reading to have in church. So what we're going to do today is um, I'm going to talk through the story uh, 
uh, and, uh, and then draw out some of the uh, implications from it. And in one sense we can say that it's a story uh, about um, people who are sticklers for certain moral rules, uh, rules of their own making, uh, but who have in fact uh, rejected God. And if we look at it this way, we could say that chapter 19 uh, is about the rules of hospitality. Now, let's have a look at that. In verse 1 of chapter 19, we meet a man from the tribe of Levi. He's married, but he also has a concubine. That's uh, like a... It's more than just a mistress. It's more, more like a second wife. Uh, and in the uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, there were, there were several ways that a man could obtain a concubine. Uh, well, he, could, um, he could purchase a concubine. That was one way. Uh, or he might even receive a concubine as a wedding gift, just to make his wife feel real special. Um, or... Um, uh, sometimes a barren wife might give one of her maidservants to her husband to be his concubine. Now, who is the classic example of that in the Bible? That would be Sarah, uh, who gave Hagar to Abraham. Uh, it was not moral. It's not that kind of thing. It's not condoned by the Scripture, uh, because the, the biblical view is that marriage is between uh, is a union between one man and one woman exclusively for life. That's marriage. And that's the biblical view. So this was not moral. And you've got to say, that to be a concubine, well, you know, it's not every parent's dream that their daughter is going to grow up and become some guy's concubine. <laughs> that's not a great situation of life to be in. Mind you, in verse 2, this particular concubine, she had her boyfriends as well. Uh, she was unfaithful. And we are told that she had left her husband, we'll put that in inverted commas, and she had gone back to live at her dad's place. But after about four months, the, her Levite husband turned up at her dad's place to bring her back home. Now... Apparently, the father didn't have any hard feelings towards this guy. In fact, uh, he rolls out the red carpet. Um, out comes the food and the wine. and uh, he, was a, he was an hospitable man, um, but he was too hospitable. Middle Eastern people, even today, are fabulously hospitable. Um, some of my friends when I was growing up were from Middle Eastern background and I got to say that, uh, you know, when I went over to their place, their mums just fed me and fed me and fed me and I couldn't get out the door without shoving more food in my face as I was, you know, they are fabulously hospitable people. They really know how to make you feel welcome. But even so, even in that context, this girl's dad was over the top. And so the Levite wanted to leave with his girl, but he couldn't get away, couldn't get out the door because the food and the wine just kept on coming. In the end, they just had to go. They had to leave. Um, but he did something very foolish. 
They left after lunch. In fact, they left in the late afternoon. Foolish because it didn't give enough time to get to their destination, to get home before dark. And so they embarked on their journey and by dusk they made it to the town of Gibeah, which was, it's an Israelite town, it belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. And in verse 16 of chapter 19, they needed a place to stay for the night. And typical of uh, Israelite hospitality, uh, there's an old man who they met who let them bunk overnight at his place. Now, uh, this is where things turn um, somewhat nasty. Take a look at verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Got it? Bring out the man who's come to your house so we can have sex with him. But this, uh, this particular host was a stickler for the rules of hospitality and in that society a host uh, was responsible for the well-being of his guest. And there's no way in the world that this host is going to allow uh, this, um, this guest of his to be homosexually raped by this gang of men. He's not going to let that happen. So what does he do? Well, in his moral bankruptcy, in verse 24, he offers to send out his own daughter and the man's concubine. Now, this gang aren't interested. They want homosexual sex. They're not interested in that. But eventually, in verse 25, they settle for something less than what they wanted when the Levite himself sends out his concubine so that she would be bashed and raped by this gang all night. Uh, did anyone learn this story in Sunday school? No. No, it's, it's, it's despicable. It is absolutely despicable. I've been watching this, um, confessing my sins here, I've been watching this, watching a, this uh, uh, soap opera on Netflix. Um, it's called Greenleaf. Anyone want to admit to watching that? That's, yeah, there's one at the back there. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, it's a soap opera all based around a church, a mega church in America. Where else? Uh, it's a pretty corrupt church. There's greed and immorality, all sorts of things. But there's one... There's a... One of the pastor's daughters, a young girl in the youth group, she actually becomes a Christian, which is quite remarkable in this particular church. She actually becomes a Christian and she comes to this passage of scripture and she asks her mother, Mum, can you please explain this to me? Her mother didn't have the foggiest idea how to explain it. <laughs> no idea. No idea. Her mother, the pastor, had nothing to say in terms of properly explaining this passage. It's one of those stories which shows that the Bible is not just a um, sanitised collection of um, nice 
moral stories, uh, that it, uh, the scriptures reveal human sin, they reveal the darkness and the corruption of the human heart, the Bible tells us as it really did happen, warts and all. And I've got to say that you've got to think this situation couldn't get any worse. Well, it does. Because what do you think that this Levite man was doing all of the time whilst his concubine was outside being bashed and raped all night? Do you think he was inside praying to God that God would help her? Do you think he was inside... Uh, thinking up his rescue plan uh, as to how he was going to get her out of the clutches of this evil gang of homosexual men. No. In verse 27, what did he do? He went to bed. He wanted to get a good night's sleep so he'd be well rested for the journey ahead the next day. And the next morning as he gets up, gets dressed, he's ready to head off on his journey so he opens up the door and he nearly trips over uh, his concubine, this woman who was lying there outside the door, she managed somehow to crawl to the door. He told her to get up so they could hit the road. But there was no answer. So he flung her on the back of his donkey and off they went. Now we don't know if she was dead or alive at that point, but by the time they finished their journey, she was most certainly dead. And in what is um, dreadful desecration, dreadful disrespect for her, he sliced up her body into 12 pieces and sent a piece to every tribe in Israel so that everyone would know what the men of this town, the town of Gibeah, had done so that the whole of Israel would be absolutely outraged. Mind you, I've got to tell you this, nowhere in the story does he make any mention to anyone else of the role that he played in this, the fact that he sent her out to be raped rather than offering up himself. It's a gruesome story. Israel had, in effect, turned away from God and moral decadence, moral decay was the result but at least the rules of hospitality were kept the old man didn't send out his guest to be raped um chapter 20 is all about the rules of justice now picture the scene uh, every tribe now receives their slice of the girl's anatomy and as was the plan they are outraged so then chapter 20, verses 1 through to 13, all of the tribal leaders now gather for an emergency summit. What are they going to do? How are they going to get retribution? Well, they demand the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin to hand over the culprits, hand over these men of Gibeah so that they would be punished. That is their demand a demand which was refused. And so, in verse 14, civil war now erupts. Uh, there's been a lot of warfare in Joshua and Judges. 
but this is actually civil war. Israelite against Israelite. And in what follows, tens of thousands of soldiers and civilians are killed on both sides. Eventually, the Benjamites are defeated. Justice has been executed, but at what price? And where was God in all of this? Well, you'd have to say this. Number one, God did not initiate it. Um, Secondly, it actually seems that God has allowed for heavy losses on both sides because uh, the, the Benjamites actually won a couple of the battles against the whole of the rest of Israel. And God has allowed that to happen for God was not only disciplining the perpetrators but he's actually disciplining the whole of Israel for their rejection of him. Because what the men of Gibeah have done is actually a reflection of Israel's relationship with God. Well, chapter 21 is now about the rules of restitution. How do you patch it all up? How do you bring it back together? The dust of battle has settled and now Israel finds themselves uh, with a very big problem and that is that the defeat of the tribe of Benjamin has been so conclusive that it nearly wiped out the entire tribe. All of the women and all of the children of Benjamin have been killed And all but 600 of their men, men who escaped, all but 600 of their men um, were also killed. So there are now, from the whole tribe of Benjamin, there are only 600 people, and they are men, who are alive. There's no women, which means there's no wives, which means there's no children to come, which means there is no future for the tribe. It's like almost genocide. Now, the other tribes did not want the tribe of Benjamin to be extinguished. They wanted the tribe of Benjamin to be able to repopulate. But herein they had another problem. Because at their leaders' summit, they had vowed that they would not give their daughters, they wouldn't give any of their daughters, to the Benjamites for marriage. And so therefore, how could this tribe of Israel survive? And then they remembered that actually not everybody in Israel had committed themselves to that particular vow. Because no one from the town of Gilead was actually present at the summit. So they come up with a brilliant solution. Will you turn with me to chapter 21, read from verse 8. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh, Jabesh Gilead 
and put to the sword those living there, including the women and the children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabeth Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Brilliant solution, isn't it? There's no one from Jabesh Gilead there, so let's go and just slaughter all of the Jabesh Gilead people, uh, except for the virgin women, and we'll save them uh, for the men of Gilead. There were 600 men of Gilead, there were 400 virgin women. Hmm? Benjamin, sorry, yep, from the tribe of Benjamin. Thanks, Steve. So, they're short by 200 women. Well, how do they fix that? Well, verse 20. So, they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the girls of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, then rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize a wife from the girls of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us a kindness by helping them, because we did not get wives for them during the war, and you are innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. No, no, you you haven't broken any vows here, because you didn't give your daughters to them, you just allowed them to be kidnapped. Great strategy. Kidnap the girls. And that way you can keep your stupid vow because you didn't give them away. Well, we come to the end of the book of Judges. Actually, not quite to the end because in verse 25, the book of Judges finishes saying, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. Indeed. Friends, if you're hoping for a positive, feel-good, take-home message today, kind of like something you know, inspirational for your New Year's resolutions and how to be a better husband or mother or how to do your job better at work, and well, this probably isn't the right passage. Sorry to disappoint you. It's awful. It's awful. It's atrocious. And that is the point. That's the point. Because although Israel had no human king like the nations around them, there is a sense in which Israel always had a king. Yahweh, God. God is their king. God is their ruler. God is their Lord. But when God is sidelined or when God is put into the blender of idolatry and human wisdom and moral, then this is what happens. This is the moral decay which results. And we are meant to feel that. At the beginning of the book of Judges, uh, Israel had just entered into Canaan. And they were to be God's people living in God's place under God's rule. But by the end of the book, it's everyone living as they see fit. 
the gods of their own lives. And like people today, they, they will call out to God in times of crisis and war. They will go to God and they'll seek his blessing when they're about to go and do something. But they actually don't want him to be their king. They want him to be their saviour, but not their lord. And so every man did what was right in his own eyes. If it feels good, just do it. It could be the slogan of our generation, couldn't it? So that what is right or wrong is not determined by God and his word, but rather by popular opinion. Homosexual practice is now considered to be morally right. Uh, in fact, it's considered to be morally wrong to suggest that it's not morally right to say some of the things I've said in this sermon. Sex before marriage is now, that's the norm, isn't it? The killing of unborn children, that's a woman's right. And the thin edge of the euthanasia wedge has now begun in our land. We do as we see fit. We do that which is right in our own eyes. And even within the church, even within the church, and those who raise the voice of protest, we find are mostly those who are actually holding firmly to God's word. And protest we must. Yet we do so knowing that, <coughs> that we are not moral crusaders, that preaching and teaching morality has no power to change people's hearts because at the heart of the very problem is the problem of the human heart. Which means that as Christians, <clears throat> we must keep on calling and urging people to turn back to God as the preeminent decision that they need to make in their lives. And that, of course, means that above all, that we preach Jesus. We preach Jesus and him crucified as the atoning sacrifice for all of our moral corruption and the darkness of our hearts. The author of the Herald article said that we should not teach our children Christianity because it makes them hate, causes wars, and it doesn't change anyone for the good. Well, you know what? She might be right about religion. I'm sure she is right about religion. But that's false religion. That's the religion that we see in Judges. And that's the very kind of religion that Jesus reserved his fiercest condemnations for, for those who present as uh, whitewashed tombs, looking all religious on the outside, but with hearts that are the darkest of the dark. She might be right about religion, 
but she's dead wrong about the gospel. Can you imagine a world without any gospel? Can you imagine if the world was like Australia before 1788? Complete ignorance of God. Can you imagine your own life without the gospel? No forgiveness from God, which is the very thing which compels us to be forgiving towards other people. No reconciliation with our maker, the very force which causes enemies to become friends. And we know that in our own lives. No hope beyond the grave. The hope beyond the grave, the hope of resurrection, the hope of eternal life, lived with God and his kingdom, in his kingdom forever, which actually shapes the way that we live now as we seek to please him and prepare for that future. Imagine a life, imagine a world where there is, where there is no life lived in the way that the creator intended. And now think, would that be a better world than the one we live in now? What would it be like? Or is it just everyone doing as they see fit? Let's pray. <clears throat> uh, Father, it is with um, <clears throat> a certain reticence that we actually thank you for this passage um, for it is so um, challenging to us but we are grateful that your word uh, speaks of uh, humanity the way humanity is and we thank you father god that uh, even as this passage this book ends with uh, israel having no king and everyone doing that which is right in their own eyes that it um it projects forward uh, to King Jesus. We thank you, Father God, that in your great love and mercy that you sent your one and only Son and for his death on the cross to pay for all of our wickedness and for his resurrection by which he is declared with power to be Lord of all. We thank you, Father God, that he is indeed Lord of our own lives. And we pray that um, for our uh, people, for our land, for our world, that many, many more people would come to understand the reality of Christ and what he's done for us and would name him as their king. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. <laughs>